We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being produced. We respectfully recognise the Wurundjeri people and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nations. Welcome to Undercover Episode 8. I'm Kyra Briggs. And I'm Matilda Anderson. In today's episode, we'll be looking at brand sustainability claims and how the wine industry is dealing with climate change. We'll also talk about the ghosting phenomenon, nature prescription, and how lockdown can actually have a positive impact on our children. So Kyra, have you ever read the sustainability claim on a brand's website? I try to, but sometimes I get a bit confused by all the jargon. You might be surprised to know that a lot of those are just claims. Many household name brands are big culprits of greenwashing. Let me tell you more. Here in Australia, our beach bum biases can lead us to think that Aussie-owned brands wouldn't be culprits of greenwashing, which is when a brand claims to be more ethical than they actually are. This can be negating important facts, over-marketing small initiatives that don't have a big impact, or just lying to you. Is sustainability the new black? With her focus on this issue, I spoke to slow fashion advocate and writer at Refinery29, Maggie Zhao, for more information. I do think that brands try to seem more ethical or sustainable than they actually are um, to make a profit. I think we have to remember as well that brands are made up of people and people who head up these brands are intelligent. So when we talk about fast fashion being bad, what does that actually look like? Well, Maggie investigated Shein, which is an ultra-fast fashion online retailer. They have so much bad press around them. They have things like cultural appropriation, stealing from independent designers, obviously the um, allegations of bad working conditions and whatnot. I interviewed this tech reporter called Rita Liao, and she helped write a book about um, she in and she was in China at the time when I called her in Guangzhou where they predominantly manufacture. You can actually walk past these mini sweatshops and you can see people working away. You'll see signs that will actually advertise like how much they pay for one item made. Just because that this is so common doesn't make it right. Workers can be exploited or are encouraged to overwork. Maggie and I continue to talk about sustainability and she told me a lot. Did you know that Australia is the world's second biggest polluter of textiles into landfill and that because of fashion manufacturing, there are rivers in China being dyed different colours to cover up the pollution? We know that climate change is real and therefore the conversation about sustainability is often focused around the environment. But Maggie is passionate about spreading the word of the ethical dilemma that is underpaying garment workers. It shocks me that less than 2% of brands actually pay their workers a livable wage. Like This, in my eyes, is the bare minimum. And if 98% or more brands aren't meeting that, that is infuriating for me. I mean, yeah, I agree with you, Maggie. But this wouldn't happen here in Australia. And especially not from shops that don't even have the option to purchase a plastic bag to carry home my new items in. Do you see where I'm going here? 
I've worked in retail for a while and what I've heard through the grapevine about some beloved Aussie brands has led me on a bit of an investigation. For legal reasons, I can't tell you where Millie was an employee for over two years, but I can confirm that their sustainability promises do not match up to her experience working there. We wouldn't be paid to open and close, which is illegal. You like, have to be paid to open and close. But because I was a casual, it was cheaper for me to run Sundays, and I wasn't paid any extra for that, even though I was in like a managing role. Especially when it came time to COVID, I was entitled to JobKeeper. I had been employed there for over 12 months and they were refusing my pay. So I had to go through fair work. I was not the only staff member they were doing that with. The following statement is in the sustainability section of this company's website. Our mission is to ensure the products you buy and love are made in an ethical and humane way. We are conscious of our environmental footprint and continue to put practices in place. Mass-produced items have replaced many goods once made by highly skilled Australian workers. We hand-print all of our goods in our own warehouse, 100% local. This is what Millie had to say. I think that if customers were to find out what really goes on, I think they would be so disappointed. They buy all of their clothes overseas or they get them made overseas. My manager, she did like a tour of the big warehouse and she was saying that all of the items came from China. So like I'm pretty sure their jumpers, they buy for like 97 cents self-retail price here. They're definitely not the only one, although they are a really big one because I think more so than other companies come across as being more you know, sustainable and environmentally friendly. Millie said that while the company stopped issuing plastic bags to customers in a green initiative, behind the scenes was a different story. So we'd get weekly stock drop, 50 huge boxes just full of stock. All the items would be individually wrapped in plastic. Yeah, it was definitely a shock for me. Really don't think people truly know what goes on, which is fair enough. There's not information out there. It may definitely stick with trying to appear to be really sustainable and really ethical. Even though they're opening a new store in Australia every three months, they're expanding exponentially. I told Maggie about Millie's experience and she wasn't surprised. She mentioned sustainability indexes like Good On You and she said that this particular brand was rated a 2 out of 5. But should it be up to an individual to cross-reference claims across brands? We don't think so. Brand transparency is so important when it comes to sustainable fashion because we need to know what's happening in these factories, how workers are being treated and paid. That leaves governments and those in power to create policies that protect the vulnerable and also more policy around output of brands and the environmental impact as well. While we wait for change to move from possibility to policy, we can help each other recognise greenwashing and push for brand transparency so that those at the top are held accountable and the vulnerable are protected. Coming up next, we have Kaya Martin telling us the story of how the Australian wine industry is suffering from climate change. Aussies love a good glass of wine, myself included, but what does the future look like for our local wineries? It's time that we talk about the future of Australian wine. It's no secret the world around us is changing. For years, scientists have warned of rising heat levels and more frequent extreme weather events such as droughts, floods and fires. Wine holds a unique mirror up to our changing climate. As the grapes hang on the vines, their flavor becomes different with every slight change in temperature and atmosphere. I spoke to Andy McIntyre, founder of the Melbourne Wine School, about how much of a threat climate change poses to Australia's wine industry. Climate is absolutely everything. Like where it's grown, how it's grown, the length of the season, um, any weather events, any, I don't know, any idiot running through a vineyard. Like 
in a good season, there's enough challenges just to get a crop and get a harvest. But then you throw in floods and fires and death and destruction and chaos. But climate is one of the most important elements of grape growing. The way he tells it, it seems like winemakers are in a constant battle with the environment, fighting to ensure their product will taste the way it should. Rising heat puts the vines in danger of burning or dying of dehydration. A hotter summer means the grapes will ripen quicker, pushing workers to the limits. If the grapes can't be picked in time, they'll go to waste. As traditionally cooler areas get hotter, it changes which grapes can be grown there, which is bad luck for one of Australia's favourite reds. Shiraz definitely is a grape variety that we have to keep an eye on. Shiraz should probably not be grown in the Barossa. That is a big statement and somebody is going to come and shank me later for saying that. But Shiraz ideally should not be grown there. And to put it in context, there's a winery in Heathcote, or there was a winery in Heathcote called Tatiara. They're an Australian institution, they've been around for years. They actually had to sell their winery a few years ago because they couldn't afford to buy water anymore. And they were primarily a Shiraz growing, Shiraz making winery. Australian wine growers need to adapt almost every aspect of how they do business, from the way they make the wine to the type of wine they make. Grapes that are better suited to a warmer climate, like Tempranillo, Sangiovese and Avinto, may rise in popularity here. I think they say the worst thing you can say in business is that's the way we've always done it. You know, you've got to have that innovation. You've got to be, like you say, kind of keeping up with it. But, you know, in Australia, I think it just means that we have to adapt a little bit more and our clonal selection has to be better. Our rootstocks have to be better. Our management has to be better. Our water management has to be better. Our canopy management, like everything, it just means that there has to be more work. I wanted to take a look at how the industry could address climate issues, so I took a train out to Nagambi to chat with Lockie Thomas, environmental and vineyard research analyst at Tobilk Winery. Tobilk is the legacy vineyard established in 1860 and is the first in Australia to be certified as carbon zero. Lockie picked me up with his dog Bear and we drove around the acreage. Yeah, so these, these vines were planted in 1927. They're my son, which is what Tobilk's known for. So. Yeah. The process of Tobilk really coming to be such a, a passionate business around sustainability and environment really just stems from the place. We've walked around here with the traditional owners, the Tangarung people, many a time, and and it's just, we're always in agreement that it's just such a spectacular place that even before white people were here, it was always a special place. It was, you know, we had five separate water holes in the, in the area here that seasonally would link up, and it was, it's almost like a supermarket here. There's, there's so much wildlife. So much of what they're doing at Tobilk just makes sense. A herd of grazing sheep helps cut down on field maintenance, and they're working with indigenous groups to do selective burning to get rid of invasive species. Lockie tells me that sustainable practices like investing in solar and energy-conserving refrigerators are not just good for the environment, but also for the business's bottom line. And the exciting thing about a lot of this sustainability work is that it often goes hand-in-hand hand with greater efficiency. And greater efficiency can be in both time and or money so usually by doing something like putting solar on our roof we'll hit that payback period really quickly and any time after that we're saving significant amounts of money whilst also doing a great sustainability initiative so it's really i think encouraging for businesses to step back and look at the way that sustainability initiatives can be a great way to reflect on the practices you're doing and often lead to greater efficiencies in your operations because wine is so dependent on environment, I asked Lucky if he thought that winemakers had a unique responsibility to become more eco-friendly. I think so, and I think it's really exciting at the moment. So what we've found over the last couple of years is that for all of our export markets, sustainability is a huge issue and topic. Everyone that we talk to when we're trying to sell our wine overseas is asking about 
our sustainability practices, how we're making things and, and how we're doing our operations. Within Australia, it's been a bit more slow. It hasn't been the primary thing that people ask about or care about. But I think the market's really shifted in the last year or two. And, and we're also seeing a lot of the big players in the, the wine industry really pushing for greater sustainability in the industry. Wine being so affected by the climate, I think everyone started to realise that this is something that we really have to promote and, and help each other and support each other to really make progress in this kind of field. I think we should choose to that while we still can. Next, we have Ibanez Taylor telling us about the positive impacts after a long lockdown period on prep-aged children. Despite missing out on their formative years of education, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. News in the fight against coronavirus with confirmation of the first two cases acquired on our own shores. Since the beginning of 2020, coronavirus headlines have been blowing up our lives and affecting the globe. Research completed by the Royal Children's Hospital Centre for Community Health found children from low socioeconomic levels and children with additional health needs were particularly disadvantaged during the pandemic. Sure, you are overhearing about the negative effects of the pandemic, but perhaps today I can show you that it wasn't all as bad as we thought. Hunter was entering prep when the pandemic came along. Hunter is now seven, going on eight, and spoke to me about how he felt during lockdown. My lockdown was good because I spent lots of time with my family and we had a movie night. Every child's experiences through COVID was of course different, but for some children, just having time to hang out with your parent in a non-hurried way may have been one of the best things about isolation for them. I spoke to child psychologist Fiona O'Connor, who spoke to me about the impact it did have on children, both positively and negatively. She opened up about the long-term effects and how the impact of COVID will hopefully help everyone to chase their aspirations, as you never know what's around the corner. As younger group, I can only expect from some families and I, that I've spoken to and my own family too, I felt like it really did feel like it was more of the childhood that I had when I was growing up during the 70s and things like everything's very slow and it's about your family and not having a lot of distractions generally, kind of all in it together. Kids I saw felt like really it gave them a renewed appreciation of school. So, which is kind of interesting. I wasn't really expecting that. So I had some kids who felt like they couldn't wait to get back to school, basically, in person, because they were just so over the online school. And it's not the best way, but schools adapted well. But it's really, most students really didn't like it that much. I mean, I found occasionally there were some students that felt it worked for them and maybe some of those would go on to distance education and might opt out of in-person school. But I think for the vast majority, they want, were pretty keen to get back to school. So I felt like that was a positive thing, not taking things for granted and just being in a class and kind of engaging with other people. I think with a lot of families, it was like they want to live life now rather than waiting the next holiday. I felt like most people now are not putting things off generally. This unexpected event that came so suddenly, the phenomenon of COVID-19 certainly has a very complex impact on every life or relationship. 
I spoke to Phil, Hunter's dad, who told me that he believes the resilience that these kids have learned from the pandemic will give them a push to a greater future and to really strive for the stars. I think this period of isolation for any kind of, especially the COVID kids these days, I think it would have just forced them to go for gold, you know, rise to the stars, go for their dreams. I think the kids uh, who went through such a harsh time it just would have brought out the positive in them. And that's what Hunter did. He went for his dreams. And um, that was that's all we expected from him. It makes us very proud parents. It's all about looking at the glass half full. I know for myself, my peers and my friends, it has pushed many of us to go live our dreams as life is too short and can change at any moment as we have learnt. This hopefully has shown you that the resilience learnt for the COVID children of today will push them too. Ghosting has become a common term evolving from modern dating, but I'm curious about its psychological impact and how we can heal from it. Well, I talked to a relationship counsellor on this matter. Let's explore the story. You're speaking with someone online. You seemingly hit it off. You may go on a date or two and in some cases even progress into a relationship. And then, radio silence. You hear nothing back from the other person. You're plagued with anxiety and frustration, overanalyzing every interaction to see where you went wrong. Was it something you did? Was it something you said? Questions of self-doubt and insecurity creep in, and you're just left wondering, wondering why your connection has been cut short with not even a courtesy goodbye message or explanation. This, unfortunately, is an all-too-common experience in the modern world of dating. With dating apps giving access to abundant opportunities for connection, it seems we have become flippant in our manners and general decency towards those we speak to. It has coined a new age term, ghosting. And although the term ghosting sounds somewhat trivial, as a phenomenon, it can bring unprecedented psychological suffering to the victims. I spoke with couples counsellor Tess Riley-Brown to discuss her take on the concept of ghosting. It's where one participant stops or blocks all communication with the other. With increased access to connect via a digital realm, there is a tendency for people to ghost as an alternative to mature communication. So what are the repercussions of being ghosted? I spoke with someone who has experienced firsthand the negative psychological impacts that ghosting can bring. For privacy, we'll call her Jess. Jess met someone whom we'll call Matt on holiday. They spent every day together for two weeks and continued to speak once they went their separate ways. They flew into state to meet each other's families and spoke every day for eight months with conversations about moving to live together. And then one day, no response. Radio silence with no explanation. I asked Jess how this affected her. I spent a lot of time crying to myself. It made me doubt myself a lot. It made me feel like what we had wasn't real. Yeah, it came back to my future dating life because then I always was doubting, like, do they actually like me or are they just kind of going to want to walk away? With an experience like this, it's clear ghosting can leave some deep psychological scars and Jess's story is one of many in the world of modern dating. So why does ghosting occur? I spoke to couples counsellor Tess Riley-Brown again. Well, really, it's evidence or symptomatic of a person who lacks emotional intelligence, skill, and especially emotional courage to handle difficult or uncomfortable conversations and feelings. 
It's clear ghosting is symptomatic of something the other person is lacking, rather than anything personally wrong with yourself. However, this does not negate the emotional repercussions it can leave. So how can one heal and move past such an experience of being ghosted? I spoke with Tess again. First, to acknowledge the feeling, the pain, the hurt, the disappointment, the anger, all those feelings are really, really normal. So acknowledging is number one. The second is allowing the feelings, not trying to divert or distract from them, allowing them and processing them. And the best way to do that, strategies of self-compassion. The third step would be to release all those feelings so that you can refocus, perhaps packing up all the pain into just bite-sized wisdom to take with you. And the fourth is get out there again. Don't let one bad apple ruin the barrel for you. From this advice and discussion, it's clear ghosting is often an unavoidable part of dating. The important part is to not internalize your experience as something that is wrong with you, but instead use this expert advice to help you heal, learn, and move on. This has been Kyra Briggs for Undercover. Over to you. So Kyra, when we think of medicine, what usually comes to our mind first? I would say probably Panadol, insulin, lithium, or even just a knob of ginger. You probably wouldn't think a walk in the park watering a flower, or listening to birds are included as well. But doctors around the world are telling patients to get in touch with nature. Charlie Williams explores the state of green prescription in Australia. So a few weeks back, I met up with this guy, Liam. So I'm Liam, and I am an outdoor educator, soon to be. We had a chat about what he does. Sort of show them the systems that are needed as well to live in the outdoors. Because that's what we're doing for five days. We're going to go live in the outdoors. About where his work takes him. We're talking like the Murray River. we got the Bogon High Plains, Wilson's Prom, uh, Arapiles. What he loves about it. Me, it's like relaxing and chilling out with the kids and just sitting and being in nature. Like sometimes we just count clouds. I'd be like, hey guys, we're going to count clouds for a bit, you know? I'm just going to sit down and count clouds. And to be honest, I saw Liam to hear about his experiences of the therapeutic elements of nature. I thought... This guy spends a lot of his time in the outdoors. He'll have some gnarly stories, maybe some moments of catharsis on mountain peaks or near-death experiences in violently gushing rapids or days upon days of total isolation and silence. But when I ask him, he starts talking to me about St Kilda. Um, Start of the year sort of thing and mid-lockdown and I was stuck in St Kilda, but I was just feeling... Like many Australians, the consecutive lockdowns were hitting Liam hard. He was feeling depressed, had decided to see a counsellor. Sleep late spending too much time on my computer, just eating not very well. But around this time, Liam was working on a literature review for his university course, one that looked specifically at the effects of meditation in the outdoors and urban environments. And it shifted how he began dealing with the situation. That really sort of clicked me on to, it's a viable option. If you're feeling pretty crap, I just thought to myself, go and see some green stuff. You, you sit inside all day, you do nothing. So I committed to that. I got up in the mornings and I came to the St Kilda Botanical Gardens. I'd pick one of these benches and I'd sit down and I'd write and I'd write about what I'm hearing and I'd write about what I'm seeing and I'd just try and, in my words, explain what I was experiencing. What happened was I I felt better, you know? I felt better about starting my day here and I felt better about the rest of my day 
that I've started my day in some green place. Um, okay, wait. You might be thinking you know that being out in nature is good for your health. You may have even coped with lockdown in a similar way to Liam. But what's interesting here is that that thing that Liam did, going out and just being mindful in a green space, some organisations are looking at ways that that habit can be integrated into the Australian health system. Most likely, this will come in the form of green prescriptions. In other words, a doctor prescribing time spent in nature. A trial in Adelaide last year looked into how these green prescriptions might work. Here's one of the architects of the trial, Professor Drew Dawson, explaining a bit about how these programs look in other countries. And yes, other countries are doing this. Um, had been expanded. Prescriptions in the UK in particular had been used for allied health professionals, as they are to a certain extent in Australia. And the idea was to expand the use of those prescriptions so that it would include people engaging in outdoor activities with nature. Sometimes the prescription... He says it can be self-managed or managed by a caseworker, which is what they do in the UK. It could also be run by a localised health network like in Canada. And these do produce benefits. Research suggests contact with natural environments can boost immunological defence mechanisms, and some studies have shown that you can reduce stress and annoyance just by listening to recordings of natural sounds, like this. But the correlation between nature exposure and health isn't always clear-cut. This is usually because when doing research, it can be difficult to accurately quantify someone's contact with nature. To Dawson, this represents a hurdle in introducing a program into Australian healthcare. And while it seems a no-brainer that spending more time in nature is a good thing, part of the problem around the provision of healthcare services at the moment, and this is not an unreasonable one, is you have to demonstrate that the treatment intervention is effective, that it's better than current treatments, and that it is cost-effective. And while it probably will happen in the longer run, that data doesn't yet exist for brain prescriptions. They're the kind of challenges. The fact that there isn't any kind of uniform or structural uptake of green prescriptions in Australia doesn't mean the groundswell isn't already there. Okay. So I'm Associate Professor Vicky Cotzerillas. I'm a GP and also have a professorial position at the University of Western Sydney. So I've been at our practice now for over 30 years. It's a holistic practice. We spend more time with patients and we uh, tend to take on a focus of non-drug strategies. So, for example... In tandem with normal medical practices, Vicky gives her patients what she calls a lifestyle prescription, a written protocol that recommends adding more veggies to your diet, getting a healthy amount of sun, committing to exercise and... Connection with nature and deep breathing, meditation, spending more time outdoors, green spaces or blue spaces. Blue spaces would be beaches. But without proper recognition from the system, these protocols are made less effective. So unfortunately, it's the Medicare system structured in a way that goes against doctors spending more time with patients. So we... What Vicky means is Medicare rebates are reduced as she spends more time with the patient. And to effectively give someone a prescription on lifestyle or nature, it needs to be tailored to the individual. And to properly tailor it to an individual, you need that extra time that Medicare doesn't cover. Nonetheless, the desire to spend more time with patients is there. Doctors want to do it. And the recognition of providing more lifestyle prescription is there. 
you know. And so right now, green prescriptions aren't a structurally sound program. They may even cost you a pretty penny. But while Australian healthcare plays catch up, just remember you don't need a note from a doctor to connect with nature. Try taking your headphones out and listening to some birds. Take your shoes off and walk on the lawn. Give the sad looking plant in your living room a bit of tender love and care. Your body and mind may thank you for it. Now you think of it, my ability to get green therapy, my ability to go outside and, and uh, interact with the green environment, I definitely think it's had a, an effect on me. And I can say that looking back pretty confidently, sometimes in the moment, you know, you don't realise it that much. But, you know, when you look back, it's easy to attribute all of those good things. And that wraps up episode 8 of Undercover. I would like to thank my co-presenter and reporter Kara and other reporters Kaya Martin, Charlie Williams and Ibanez Taylor. Round of applause to you too, Matilda. And we'd also like to thank this episode's producer, Tween Yuang, and our executive producers, Bernadette Nunn and Tito Ambio. Most importantly, thank you all for listening and be sure to tune in for the next episode of Undercover.